Hi investors, this is Danny with Investorly. At Investorly, we empower you to invest early in your financial future. In episode seven of A Conversation With, we welcome Ben Miller, CEO and co-founder of Fundrise, a technology platform that brings institutional quality real estate to everyone. We learn about the challenges and rewards of building a democratized real estate product, his insight on the overall real estate market, and the future of his company. To stay informed of upcoming episodes and receive our insightful weekly newsletter, subscribe at investorly.substack.com. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Who inspired or mentored you early in your investing journey? That's a good, you know, honestly, it was my father. So I had a, my father is a real estate developer. He's a, if anybody knows about real estate, classic real estate developer, visionary, and, um, you know, I watched him, you know, make, make nothing into something that's been sort of, that was what initially inspired me. He was big, a big personality. <laughs> the big personalities are great. So with that inspiration, then what was the first investment you made in real estate? Let's say, oh, well, it's funny. I started out at a real estate private equity fund. That's probably the first actual real estate investment I made, which was, it's this uh, fund called Uber Adler in Philadelphia, and they're like very institutional. And uh, remember, like running Argus on this like strip center, and having just no idea why we'd make this investment. So, so I made an investment as part of that um, part of that transaction. But it was that was a long time ago, and I definitely did not have a good sense of what I was doing in the beginning. <laughs> That's- <laughs> well, sure. I mean, listen, most, most investments, no matter what it is, whether it's, uh, you know, real estate or any other type of uh, place that you invest, oftentimes you have to go through trials and tribulations, right? You got to fail and then learn from your failures. And, and, and that's usually how you improve and, and iterate. And so that brings us sort of right to Fundrise. Talk to us about, you know, how the idea behind Fundrise, uh, what was the inspiration and, and what really was the moment where you're like, I need to do this on my own and I need to do Fundrise and create it and give us that idea. Yeah. So I was working uh, as president of this urban mixed use real estate development company in DC. So we did large mixed use developments. These are like, you know, $250 million complex developments that take like five, seven years to build. And we were building some in the middle of the sort of 2008 when the financial crisis hit and, um, you know, we had big money partners that, you know, billion, multi-billion dollar institutions, and they just started to like blow up. And, and, and I watched basically yeah. sort of the world turn upside down where, you know, I thought the big money was the smart money. I thought they were like obviously moneyed, right? It turned out they were basically, you know, over leveraged and, and not as smart as I, I thought, you know, if anybody was in business finance that time, I mean, it was very disillusioning. Like I was, I was just like, this is broken. You know, there's so many bad things were happening in um, finance those those days, and so I was, I started thinking like, well, is there like a different way that that's like doesn't I mean, doesn't stick you in the middle of this sort of ma- this maze, this rat's nest? And so I was sitting there complaining about how I was trying to buy the city block in D.C. and um, institutional investors were just like. So institutional, it was an emerging neighborhood. If you if you go back to 2000, this is 2011, 12, back then, like emerging neighborhoods is where, where, where all the growth was. So like New York, that's like Brooklyn. In DC, it's like H Street, LA, it's like LA Arts District. So, And so I was trying to buy the city block and all these institutional investors were like, oh, it's too dangerous. It's too edgy. 
was like, no, that's why it's good. That's why it's cheap. Actually, it was too small. I'm like, small is like cheap, not not bad. And um, anyway, so I was like, and I, so I was like, what's complaining? Like everybody in the neighborhood was like, oh my god, you're buying that block? That's insane. I can't believe it. I wish I could invest with you. That's so incredible. And I was sitting there, and I was like, why? Why can't the people who actually live around this place, who are making it actually grow, be the ones who then actually own it? Amazing. So, so essentially, it sounds like. Fundrise is essentially created as an answer. What happened in two thousand seven, two thousand eight? Yes. Yeah, I mean it's 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 in our culture. It's in our uh, absolutely in our like mission that I I felt like the individual investor was treated like a second class citizen. And actually, when I when I initially was coming up with the idea, the biggest challenge was the regulations. You know, the SEC like how do you democratize investing into real estate? People couldn't do it before. And I went up to New York to like the I think the number two law firm in the country. Their offices is on the, on the in the Condonast building, which is like Times Square, top floor, basically. I go pitch their head of real estate, their head of securities. This is what we got to do. We got to like break the system wide open, democratize access, like change how everything works, use technology. And my sort of like like really impassioned speech. The guy looks at me and he says, "Well, why would you bother with a little guy?" And I was like, yeah. "Oh man!" I actually was devastated by that. I was like. Like these guys are the experts. Like they must know. And I like I was just sitting there, like in the elevator, just going down. And be like, oh, this is so depressing. Like, what am I gonna do? Like last year, somebody introduced me to them. You should hire this law firm. You know, we have like billion, you know, billions of real estate now and stuff. And I'm like, ah, oh, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's almost a a combination. I mean, you almost, you know, where we are in 2021 now, as we get closer to 2022 with not just the, you know, going through a kind of a, a generational change with the pandemic, but then you have a serious, uh, you know, level of decentralization sort of being thought about in different industries and, and being sort of incorporated into sort of normal life. It, it does feel like as someone that's been around for a considerable amount of time and then part of the Fundrise platform, what attracted me was sort of that idea of, of taking care of the little guy and considering them and not being just about the big person. In fact, hoping to incorporate, you know, the people that sort of are not given chances to be in investments, uh, which is what Fundrise really it feels like, you know, is about and the ethos. So why don't you talk more about Fundrise specifically? So someone that's just hearing this brand new, you know, we've written about it at Investorly. We talk about it. I share it, but I want to hear from the, I got the co-founder. I, I got the CEO right now. I want to hear from you what it is to someone that maybe doesn't have a lot of money, but is like, you know, I like the ethos of this company and what they're doing and I want to get involved. Well, so, so Fundrise is an online real estate investment platform and is real estate historically has had like ex- exceptional returns, but it wasn't available for, for normal investors. I mean, normal checks are in the millions. And so we're like, well, could we use technology to democratize access by real estate as to buy a book on Amazon? And, and we have, I mean, right. You, when you, if you check out, if you, you've done it, right. And you can buy it as easy as you buy anything on the internet now. And that was like, we first did that. Nobody had done that. We had to like design checkout, like how you check out for a, a piece of real estate, and how. I mean, and so a lot of people have like sort of in a lot of industries have ended up kind of copying a lot of things that are almost invisible in in your product experience. I think of it as like not just not that that the like giving the you know, individual investor access, but like I feel like we're gonna it's ultimately a revolution. There's a there's a yeah. parallel ha- happening in every industry. Where like the institutional player gets blown up by the individual 
using technology. We have investors who have like millions on our platform and we have we've invested we have a product that the minimum is ten dollars. There's a lot of technology underneath of that, right? Because it's it's very um it's a lot of transactions. But yeah, we, we basically got the minimum down to ten dollars for for like a starter package or starter like product. And that's been actually really fun. We, we only we only really got that going like for the summer and like we have like uh, like for in that in that product, like a much younger cohort, and they're like so different than the multi-million dollar investor, and it's like kind of fun to like see the difference on the, on one platform. So we don't have a lockup. We created basically we have so many investors. Essentially, it's it's there's always investors investing and always investors redeeming, and so it's and and we make you can go on the app, like hit a button, it redeems quarterly. It's quarterly liquidity, so it's usually like you know Jan one, March thirty first, et cetera. It, because it's not, it's not doesn't trade, right? It's not like pure liquidity, like you would see in the stock market. It's real estate, but it's much more liquid than like you know owning a building, which is not liquid. So, so it's kind of a hybrid product. And um, you know, our our our, you know, our returns are on our website. You can go to like track, you know, on that nav bar. There's track record. We have like we show actually every client's performance, or like, there's two hundred thousand dots, like a dot map. So you can see like everybody's performance over, you know, half a decade or something. So, so it's not like, it's like a different model, right? Cause like we're made up, so you don't have to see a fun performance. You can see like roll over and see like, Oh, this guy had like a 9% performance like last year. And here's like what they is anonymized. Right. But you can actually see all of that data, uh, which we thought was like, I don't think I've ever seen before. It's amazing to hear, you know, you speak about it and how it's so true when you say make it as easy as buy a book on Amazon. It really is. And what has been impressive is just the, the ability to use technology uh, to the, you know, make it possible. And so you are, you basically have an opportunity to go and use Fundrise. But even more, something I like is that you could not really know anything about real estate, but you can just learn from the platform without necessarily even investing. So how do you guys think about sort of the markets that you get into and, and sort of the strategies Dive a little bit for us? Oh, know. there's so much in that question. Well, so from like a, there's like, and you think of it as an, as an investment, like investment committee investor, you can think of it like, okay, how do you leverage technology? You think of it as like, you know, as a consumer of real estate. And I, I like to sometimes talk about it as a consumer because a lot of what you know investing investment professionals do is is make it seem complicated. They, I mean, if it's complicated, you have to outsource it to a professional. And there's lots of um, any industry that they create like language and and special math and and the, to to make it so that you have to you know basically use them and pay them a lot. But a, a lot of investing is actually pretty straightforward. Like if you and where you where do you live? Where do your friends live? Where do they go? How do they spend their time? I mean, it tells you basically, like, especially if you're if you're younger, if you're like in the rising generations, you're you're driving all the value creation happening in the future. I mean, this is something Peter Lynch used to say about stocks, right? Like, buy the stocks that you that you consume. Like, if you like Apple in 2009, like buy Apple, right? So. So I actually think that's like a part of what we do. That's not as institution. Most institutions don't do like we we build software, we build apps, we we build products. Real estate's a product first, and a financial asset second. But most of the institutional world thinks of it first as a financial asset, financial engineering, and that's why like they get hosed because they're not following the customer. Customer creates the value 
the asset to like kind of harvest it, right? Like, so, so that's like a, a way to think about it. It's not probably exactly what you were imagining I was going to say. So if you want me to go into some more like, oh, do we like single family rental? Do we like multifamily? Like, where do we like that? That's like what the real estate people like to talk about. And I can talk about that, but it, value creation comes from people first. That's like really the, the thing that I think a lot of people miss when they look at financial, when they look at investing broadly. You kind of talked about the ethos and sort of the, the identity of Fundrise and how it's not just that it's real estate. I mean, it is real estate crowdsourced using technology and such, but you actually don't just say what that, you know, you're not just saying that you actually back it up and preach sort of the individual, you know, investor because, and it's about people because Fundrise, you guys offer the ability that for the people to be part of sort of the, the, the potential ownership of Fundrise in buying, you know, pre IPO shares and then sharing the brand and getting others involved. So you sort of do, you know, you do that as you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, so we democratized investing into real estate. So, you know, we closed like $90 million uh, apartment building and, and that's made up of, you know, tens, tens, hundreds of thousands of people. Right. So it's, that's definitely our core business, but we, our talk. So our, 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 the company Fundrise itself is also owned by its customers like Vanguard. So if you, if you invest in Fundrise and you are on, I think it, you have to be on like platform for like nine months or something. We then say, if you, if you can invest some of your portfolio into the parent and it creates this alignment about values and mission where if we were a venture, well, we have some, we have some venture money, but like we, we don't have, they're not, con- venture guys don't control the company. And what venture investors want, or any financial investor wants, is basically, you know, make as much money for themselves. And maybe that's good for the customer, maybe it's not. But that's like, don't believe the hype, right? They're 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 everybody's out to try to make as much money for themselves. And that's that's why by having the customer own Fundrise, they there's just a much stronger alignment. Well, you know, you talked a lot about the the Fundrise platform to get a little bit more into specific markets. Uh, there was one. Uh, article that your team wrote that was a heavy focus on the Sunbelt market. Uh, and can you explain some of the catalysts as to why there's momentum in those markets and why there's so much focus from Fundrise on uh, the Sunbelt? So basically, one of the main drivers of real estate is affordability, right? What people go and, and live and, and spend time where, where basically they can get more for their dollar. And so since 2015, 16, we, we, we've exited sort of the New York, San Francisco markets where they were it was really expensive and started buying in, you know, Texas and, you know, it was Raleigh and Austin and, and Tampa and all these emerging markets where essentially you, I mean, you could buy an apartment, one apartment in those markets for like 80 grand and, um, and live there at a rent that was like, you know, a quarter less, you could buy a house for, for a quarter of what you'd pay in Washington, DC. And it was better weather there was a lot of job growth and, we, and there was just like this trend is, is like, I think kind of drive growth in the long term, and it, and it was driving growth. And then the pandemic hit and it really freed people up to work remotely where right? they don't have to like be near their office. And then, so there was this massive influx of people moving to these places, sort of just like e-commerce, right? The pandemic accelerated existing trends and that, and a trend, again, it's not that complicated, right? It's, it's great quality of life, you know, really affordable. You know, there's a lot of businesses now. There's huge cultural growth in all these cities, 
And, uh, and all you did is look at that and say, okay, like everybody I know is part of that trend. Like friends of mine were moving to Nashville from LA and you say, okay, well, that, what's the real estate that sort of captures that like a sale? Like how do you, how do, how do you capture that wind? And then, and that's basically mostly residential in our, in our, in our view in the Sunbelt. So, and just to be clear, Sunbelt basically is like, you know, from LA Maybe you could say you could say Vegas a little bit, but it's the sunny part of the country, and it's like a smile that starts like at the bottom, you know, upper left of, of of the country, all the way down to, you know, so it's Phoenix and Texas and Atlanta and 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 Florida, and that that's just been you know it's funny it, it there's been there's been a lot of growth, and I have like institutional people that I, that I, I work with back in like 2018, they were like, we got to get out of Florida. We got to get out of the Sun Belt and invest, move our money back to New York. And I was like, "Why?" They're like, was last time in '08, it's the Sun Belt that got crushed, and all the liquidity, all the safety was in New York, San Francisco. And I was like, "I don't think next time going to be. I don't think the next time will be the same as last time." But institutional money was mostly in the big, they call gateway cities, and that they got they got smashed by the pandemic because they, you know, institutional money mostly is a lagging like indicator of what's where where change happens because institutions are slow and risk averse mostly moving a pack but anyways I'm, I'm digressing here the question was was it gonna was it temporary when everybody's moved back to new york you know once the pandemic was over and like they were like wrong on two accounts right the pandemic like maybe it's never over certainly wasn't like over in some binary way and second is that once you once you move to these places like there's a lot of reasons to stay and, and I think a lot of like, you know, Jamie Dime is out there saying everybody has to come back to New York and everybody has to go to the office. And I'm like, that's yesterday. So, so there's an ongoing debate about essentially what the next few years look like. I think in my mind, there's no question. It's, it's most trends compound. And so we're, I think we're going to see more compounding growth in those markets. And I think the gateway cities will struggle through this decade. Keeping with uh, the Sunbelt markets, are there specific real estate investments that you've seen grow uh, substantially more than than other uh, real estate investments, such as uh, maybe commercial property or shared uh, office space or uh, multifamily homes or uh, specific suburb uh, homes or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I have a view and actually it's funny. I mean, <laughs> you basically see similar view from Blackstone. A lot of these things are driven by top-down growth. So if you get like you get the geography right and you get like some of these major trends, like exactly whether you're in urban Austin or suburban Austin or you're in apartments or you're in office. It's not, it's probably not a huge difference. I mean, I think, I think ultimately residentials and, and e-commerce industrial were the two best, but we might be, but I'm not sure it's, it's, um, it's as important to, to get those sort of micro decisions right, it's it's like the the again the professional wants to glamorize how important the micro decisions are because the micro decisions require like a lot of expertise and and obviously we have to have good execution, but the actual like alpha was at the allocation level, which was you know the basically multi residential sunbelt that would have gotten you ninety ninety five percent of the of the of the returns. Interesting. I mean, and, and just uh, the returns in you know this year to date have been you know fairly significant uh, compared to some of the past years. So there's been a, a clear uh, sort of 
you know, massive appreciation in, in obviously the housing market. How do you look at it from a sort of, uh, you know, bubble? I mean, in, in your opinion, you know, obviously sort of considered a steady, safe investment. And then now over the last period, there's been that just significant appreciation in home prices. Do you feel like real estate or, or segments of it is in a bubble? Or do you think this is just, uh, you know, what we're looking at now? No, I don't think we're in a bubble. Not even remotely. Actually, I think we're we're, we're going to see still a, a, a lot more growth in the market for a bunch of reasons. So let me. But so so one, Fundrise saw a lot of growth for two reasons. We had the right assets, right, and also we 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 made a number of technology investments that sort of were step changes, so that basically we we captured more of those returns for the R investors than before, and those technology changes pounding too. So we have like a bunch of compounding benefits. You know, scale benefits, technology benefits, and then the underlying real estate markets are. I mean, so why do I think they're going to keep going? Underlying inflation is like probably like double digits in these markets. It just pure, pure inflationary pressure is off the charts. So that's like driving assets in particular, and then I think actually financial assets are suffer from that. And then the second is that. Um, the supply chain is even more messed up than people appreciate and it's getting worse. So it's not temporary and that supply is going to cause like a shortage of, of, of homes, a shortage of refrigerators. I mean, we literally, you can't, we're buying homes that don't have refrigerators. You can't get refrigerators. Like that's how the supply chain is. And so you're going to like, so the way that you would see prices come back down is you'd have to have a lot of supply of new um, you know, housing or or new supply of real estate, basically that would equalize out the demand. That there's a huge increase in demand because of the pandemic and migration changes, but you can't increase supply because you can't get a hold of door hinges. Like you, there's just such an undersupply of of actual like um, construction materials and labor that, and that's basically I think like a three year, maybe five year um, undersupply. I mean, it's much much longer transformation than people i think realize you touched on something and obviously you can't give away you know everything obviously we understand that but when you talk about some of the advantages that have made you guys more successful at fundrise over the last year or two years specifically you said technology advantages or implementations can you sort of dive into it or when when you say that what you actually mean by that yeah i'm going to try to describe it but it's hard it's hard i i it's one of those things that like um, it's easier to see the outcome than understand like the sausage making, but the parallel is enterprise software versus SaaS. So everything was enterprise software or mainframe versus PC, right? Everything was enterprise software before, uh, I don't know when it started 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And uh, big companies, big institutions would require custom implementations. And then a lot of people didn't have software because it wasn't, you couldn't, you couldn't afford to build custom for, you know, Danny, right? And then they started building basically standardized software where Danny would have like the same software as me. And you, but there's a lot of us, right? There's millions of us. And so you could build a business upon that. And what happened was the SaaS software ended up better than enterprise software eventually because you had scale and you could basically keep leveraging software where you, where you can't do that one-off enterprise execution because it's, it just ends up being overly custom, overly fragmented the way you think about databases and things like that. So, so basically, that's the same things happening in in finance. So we have like you know two hundred thousand investors. We we have it's, every investor treated the same, and they get the same software. 
and we can basically build software into the real estate process, you know, you know, from, you only see the like outer, like candy, the candy wrapper, the thin sort of gooey graphic user interface, but the software goes, you know, from, from the individual, you know, for the app to the APIs that have for the performance to the fund management, the fund management's all software or a lot of software. The fund management goes to the real estate, the real estate operations, basically previously, if you know, if anybody's ever operate real estate, right? There's not much software. And we're just, we're the whole value chain. Is, we're building software, just eating it up. And, and the, the more software we build, the more it's basically like a different, is different than like, you know, Starwood or some fancy real estate group running around with a bunch of smart people. You know, five smart real estate professionals ultimately are not better than Google, right? The software ultimately crushes them. And that's what like, we're doing slowly but surely it's like you know grueling long long process but it's like um what's like underneath the hood yeah that's um it's funny i was just about to put it i wanted to share something at the top here i'm putting it in right now uh to the top so if anyone wants to see because you actually said essentially what you just told us in via tweet uh earlier this uh or, or last month where you, you know realizing that the compounding benefits of solving problems with software, as opposed to just hiring, was happening, and then you show the graph and how that's working out. That's uh, interesting to see how you just continue to use technology uh, to the advantage from the platform, and how data is really playing a huge role in that. Uh, I know Danny uh, wants to ask a question, so I'm going to pass it to Danny. Yeah, kind of piggybacking off of the the technology. If you're looking at a brand new market that that Fundrise hasn't invested in uh, in any capacity. What kind of metrics do you use uh, in in order to to do a deep dive research on on a maybe a, a county or or city? Yeah, that's that's where I think a lot of people in real estate feel like the data edge is somehow like I'm going to buy in Austin, but nobody knows it, right? Or I'm going to buy in like Greenville, or I mean, do you buy in like North Austin, or do you buy in East Austin, and like, but like it doesn't take that much expertise and, and it's, and it's pretty much like you, you, there's some, you know, you look at job growth and you look at, I mean, but it's, it's not as, it's sort of Zillow, Zillow sort of just, they just sort of showed this, they proved it out in the last like 24 hours, right? They, they were trying to say they were using data uh, for homes and pricing homes. Right. And they just got hosed because the data is not predictive. Anybody who's like really, Nassim Tlaib or, or Ray Kurzweil, anybody looks at how data really works, it, it's not going to be predictive, right? The housing market cooled in the last few months. There were nothing in Zillow's data models told them that was going to happen. I mean, I, I could, you could see it. It was obvious, right, if you're on the ground. So the data is less in the in – the, I mean, there's obviously some smart decision-making around the buy. It's more in the execution, the operation. It's sort of like, you know, when you're buying stock, you're buying Apple versus – right? Like only like Renaissance has a data edge. Like there's so little data edge in the markets that the market has gotten super efficient. It's much more in like in the execution than I mean. This is opposite of what most of the financial professional wants to tell you. They want to tell you like they know how to buy something. They're super smart. They they bought something. It's much less about that. It's more about actually the doing, the the operation, the execution. That's a great point. And I mean, regardless of how much technical and how many how many data points and, and metrics you use. It boils down to human instinct, which I think is an irreplaceable asset. I, I wanted to talk about the growth of Fundrise. Obviously, since the pandemic, um, Fundrise 
has grown a lot. There's been a lot of new investors coming in, um, and they're they're seeing real estate and fundrise as kind of a, a new and younger way to invest in real estate. Has there been a challenge on, on the on the side of uh, fundrise's growth and uh, keeping up with keeping up with the demand as far as uh, hiring software developers, hiring software engineers, building out the platform uh, to be able to withstand more and more investors and, and uh, widening the net of, of having a, a larger reach? Yeah, I get this question like kind of like my board, like, what's the biggest problem? And it's just always talent. It's one of the great thing about, I mean, essentially leverage, right? Is that one incredible person can do like with, with the platform, right? The work of a thousand, but it's like the difference between like a good engineer and a great engineer is like a hundredfold. And there's a shortage of labor and everything's just, you know, there's just like, if you're in any, any if you're like, a, if you're like at a, at a big four accounting firm. So one of our auditors, big four accounting firm, they have 3,000 jobs they can't fill. Did you say 3,000 jobs? 3,000, yeah. <laughs> at, at the, at, I, I can only say which one, what our big auditor, big four. And they're like, they have, we've, and there's, so they're like, oh my God, we're going to have to automate like all this work because basically like we can't find people to do it. We're, we're going to offshore some of it. It's, so it's like, and this is happening everywhere and everything. And, and it's, I, I have this view that's like, we're in a sea change that like it started at Reagan and ending, ended the pandemic. And now we're in this like new, we're basically all returns or most returns yielded to, to capital. And we're going to go into a change where returns will start yielding to labor. Um, maybe not like equitably, but there's just a total shift in power dynamics. This is another mega trend. It's it's hard to figure out how to how to manage it. It's kind of connected. It's like a supply problem in a way, right? It's like you can't get hinges, but you can't get like a person to put the hinges in. <laughs> so, yeah, for us, it's it's we need gra- we need designers, we need UX designers, and we're trying to hire UX designers, and it's hard to find them because so our bottleneck right now is actually designers, which is. I'm out of a crazy bottleneck because you'd think it'd be engineers, but the bottleneck. I have a, a guy uh, on my board, and he would say that like, you, it's always a bottleneck in your business. It just moves around the business. You have to just chase it. And we actually created a, something called the bottleneck award, and so whoever has the bottleneck award is you know like basically tries to get us because they have the bottleneck, and it, it's a little bit like having the ball in the in a game. Like you have the ball, and you like the key is to get the ball in the goal, get the ball passed because you like. So it's um. Unfortunately, there's always there's always a live ball, right? There's always a live bottleneck somewhere. Are are there advancements that you're looking at, such as maybe AI or something like that, to alleviate some of these uh, um, talent uh, challenges that you have? Yeah, well, so to, to put your point like a different way, so you you replace you know you replace a hundred accountants with ten en- software engineers. Like that's what happens is you software replaces other. Like okay, you you have all these accountants at just big four. All the all the big four accountants, accounting firms are doing this right now, right? They're replacing accountants with software engineers. You need you know a lot less engineers. Like I don't know how I don't know what the ratio is, but a lot less. But that means you need more software engineers. But there aren't any more software engineers. So as basically we solve like labor shortage, you know, throughout the throughout the country with software. It just makes the demand for software, you know, not just of engineers, just all lots of product managers and, you know, all sorts of like cybersecurity, DevOps. So there's just so many different pieces of it. And, and the demand for them is more and more acute. And then and, and, like one of the funny things I think about when I say to the team, like in the beginning of the pandemic, 
you know, Zuckerberg thought that like when engineers left San Francisco and moved to Denver, they would have to take a pay cut. But instead what's happened is all software engineers are starting to move their pay to San Francisco wages, but they live in Austin. So they're basically getting like two X. It's actually like probably what's saving us basically is engineers like getting the cost of living adjustment by moving to different cities. So it's not actually necessarily like doubling their like real wages is doubling out their nominal wages, but they're real have, have essentially doubled by living in a place that's like much less expensive than New York, San Francisco. Really interesting to hear you sort of break it down. So, you know, fairly recently uh, this past summer, you guys made news with the uh, investment with Goldman Sachs backing, you know, single family rental as for small investors. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Did you guys reach out to Goldman or how does Goldman get involved? I mean, we'll sort of give us a little background in, in that whole situation. Yeah. So money is basically, if it's not a commodity yet, it's becoming a commodity. So what you, what you have, what you really need is something everybody wants. So whether you're a tech company or you have real assets, if you have what the market wants, basically you can raise money, you know, fairly efficiently. And so, you know, we went into, Build for rent, single family rental. So, BFR. We went. We 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 we've always focused on build supply of housing. We felt like that was basically closer to what I think our our investor would want, rather than most our most single family rental platforms um, buy off MLS and compete with individuals for homes. And we didn't think that was like mostly what we what we should be doing. So we went and and sort of building communities. So we're building like thousands of homes. We build them in like. Um, like 50, 100 unit type communities. So there's like a, almost like an apartment building in a, in a housing development, in a horizontal like development. And when we started that back in like 2019, like nobody was doing it. We couldn't get anybody to do it. It took us like a, a year just to convince some home builders to start doing it with us. And, and so we ended up with a head and then basically the whole market woke up to that kind of like six months, a year later. And so, but we were way ahead of the curve. We were like, you know, been working with these home builders, doing it and scaling. And so we had basically the hottest institutional asset, which is like basically BFR, single family rental, we're built for rent, single family homes. And so we said, okay, and, and as we scale, we basically wanted to uh, leverage that with, with you know, cost, cost efficient um, debt. So we, we, we went out with, with like a competitive process. You you go out to market, you go see all the major banks, get term sheets from all of them, uh, or, or a lot of them. And then you, you know, Goldman was the most attractive. And um, and we we secured a, a $300 million line of acquisition line, which basically, you know, we, we leverage, like when you buy a home, you, you use debt, you just do this at a portfolio scale at a lower cost and sort of like more, it's a different, it's, it's a different animal, but it's very similar to a home mortgage to basically buy up, you know, we have something like you know, half a billion dollars of single family homes, uh, like um, either bought or close to, or uh, about to be closed in the next like few days or next, sorry, next few um, weeks. So we have a big pipe pipeline and Goldman basically is our, is the sort of the lender on that. And, and they're, they've been actually phenomenal. They really, every knows they're super smart. You do business with them. Like, oh, these guys are really smart. It's been, it's been great. 
I, I want to just follow up on that. You know, well, listen, Goldman Sachs is sort of the, the the top of the line when you sort of think about the you know financial industry from a name brand, right? But so it's it's interesting to hear you give us a little depth and detail there that they've been great. Do you think about continuing that idea, right? Like you said, so you did this with Goldman Sachs. I mean, could we envision a future where potentially you get more sort of investments in this sort of manner uh, moving forward? If well, I'm just right? so so the investment, the equity is is individual. So what we're doing is basically giving, like you, Danny, are getting this like financing, essentially indirectly, but from the best, arguably the best financier in the world. And we made that possible with technology. Like you know, Goldman Sachs not going to finance like you know a normal person, but they'll finance an institution at scale. So we created institutional scale, institutional pricing, but rather than doing it through like you know a bunch of institutions like UBS and CalPERS and, and all these sort of normal traditional kind of middlemen. We did it with like with apps. So you're, you, what's happening is you're getting leverage, but we, we haven't. And I, and sort of like, uh, we, I mostly issue, like I sort of avoid taking equity from institutions because they just, they're just not a good customer. They, what they want us to do is customize to them. And I tell them, no, 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 no customization. Like you get your, Standardization, because we're a business. Software business about standardization, not about institutions. Yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah. I guess I was just wondering if you would sort of maybe even with, with Goldman aligned get you know more money than the the raise oh. and stuff. But it, yeah, you mean more kind of, equity or more kind debt? of follow more equity possibly. It's something that people often say, like, why don't you are you raising so much money? You you know good returns and all this technology. Why don't you raise institutional money? And uh, and uh, um. I'm a skeptic of institutions, for one. I mean, yeah. for like, we could talk about that for a while. But if we ever did it, we would do it like on our terms. Like, I like to say to people, Facebook has. If you're on Facebook, Danny, like you have a Facebook page. So does Coca-Cola. They don't get a different Facebook page. Maybe on the as an advertiser, they something different. But like, it's this Google. If like CEO of Coca-Cola, you know, Google something. He's googling the same. He's using the same technology as you. And there's like that's what makes technology possible. Like it's it's about scale, and and the second you start to customize things for institutions, you you, you stop being a technology company, you start being an enterprise software, which is like a services business. Some of those institutions, when you first you first approached in uh, you know 2009, 2010, 2011, before you started Fundrise, and it was just an idea, have they now kind of flipped their script and come to you and and looking to invest in Fundrise? Yeah, that's actually so. Yeah, back <laughs> back in two thousand like twelve or something, you know, I, I I remember I went to like, I think it was like Morgan Stanley's like, they had some like meeting and I, I went to it was like Morgan Stanley and Barclays and J P Morgan. I was and they were like, and I just told them what we were doing. Like people would invest their like, hundred dollars in internet and real estate, and they're like, you're crazy. They just thought it was crazy. That was just the craziest thing I ever heard. And then like. By 2015 or something, people are like, "Oh, that's kind of novel. That's like a novel idea." So I went from crazy to novel, and now this like, "Oh, that's obvious. Like, obviously, internet should like people should be able to do it. The internet, and and so the and I watched institutions one by one be like, "Oh, actually, like this is a great idea." And so we like most institutions like have flipped. There's still a few that are, like are skeptical, um, but that's just how technology. That's how change happens, right? Like that's why they're institutions. They're slow, right? They're they're lagging. That's why I'm skeptical of like a lot of the investment. What their institutions are are ostensibly selling performance. They're really what they're selling is like 
CYA. They're selling, like, if I put my money with a big institution, you know, I'm not going to get fired because it's because it's like, you know, we don't get fired for putting my money with this big institution. I'm going to say like Blackstone. Put your money with Blackstone. Nobody gets fired for putting your money with Blackstone or 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 Starwood or something like that. And so it's it's because people who invest in in institutional like platforms are investing other people's money. And when you're investing other people's money, you don't behave the same as when you're investing your own money. Just that, even though they all say we act like it's our own money, it's just, you don't. And that's like different. That's what the difference between like a technology platform that's you know direct or decentralized versus an intermediated platform. Intermediaries do not act like individuals. It's almost like that old saying: you don't understand until you're actually doing it yourself. So that that's a great that's a great point there. If you're putting in your own money. There's more accountability. You can't act like you're putting in your own money and say that you are. It's just a, a different uh, psychological level. But I'm just imagining uh, someone that like scoffed at you or maybe turned turned down an investment or something in 2011 or something. And now you maybe you got the email just recently. Hi, Ben. I don't know if you remember me, but it was about 10 years ago now. And we'd really like to uh, work with Fundrise. And you just replied, bend the knee. <laughs> And that'd be pretty great. Maybe you can you can use that in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No, it, Maybe just a gif of like uh, the Game of Thrones queen or something like that. That could be that could be pretty good. <laughs> I mean, look. I, I mean, I, in twenty thirteen, I was you know I was like a whatever tech entrepreneur, and I, and I met this guy at this tech conference, and he was telling me how to let people sleep on their couches and. And I was like, that's so crazy and scary. Like, I'm not going to let somebody sleep on my couch. That sounds like they're going to, like, murder me in the middle of the night or something. Like, obviously, I was wrong about Airbnb. And, like, you know, so, I mean, people, it's it's really hard. It's hard to make those calls. You're absolutely right. Yeah, there's there's no way to really tell the future. And, you know, until the, the product is there in front of you, it's, for a lot of people, it's really hard to see no matter how passionate you are and how much, you know, uh, conviction you have in what you're saying, they still might look at you and be like, mm, this is a very idea or something. But, but with the growth of, uh, um, fundrise, I wanted to go, I wanted to talk about, uh, crypto. A lot of institutions are adopting crypto. Uh, a lot of companies now are putting it on their, on their balance sheet as Bitcoin specifically. Now with fundrise, are you looking to implement, uh, payments of Bitcoin from new investors or existing investors and or looking to uh, implement blockchain technology in your infrastructure or uh, put Bitcoin or another crypto on your balance sheet? Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to figure out how to leverage it for our whole business, the technology, but more than the sort of the, the like at it as an asset class in and of itself. Like the, the place where I, I, I think is most interesting for me, if you sort of look at I mean, the last like probably 50 years, right? Most people outside, the, say a lot of people outside the United States look at U.S. real estate as where you put your money for safety. Like if you, if you go to Miami, if, like, right, like talk to people from Latin America, South America, like they've just like, you get money, you buy U.S. real estate. And if you look at kind of like, like the way that most capital flows work there, it's so intermediated. It's so inefficient. It's crazy. It's just crazy. Like literally, you see people just buy. They literally buy a condo and be like empty. And they don't because they're just trying to get U.S. real estate. And I'm like, can't there? Can't we basically do? I mean, why can't it be frictionless? Right with with some kind of 
you know, I don't know exactly, exactly, exactly how, to, and it, it absolutely could be. It's not really a technology problem. It's a regulatory problem by regulators. Cause I'm super regulated. It's funny. Like Bitcoin, when it's like a platonic idea, they basically essentially don't regulate. But the second I'm like, all right, like I'm going to use that technology to make for investment from whatever, like Brazil. You know, if you're Brazilian, you could basically for ten dollars own U.S. real estate. Nope, can't do that. So it's like an interesting challenge. It's it's uh, how do you how do you create like a, a global safety? Um, I mean, like because U.S. real estate is much much more uh, secure than most global assets. So that's what I'm most interested in. I just haven't figured out how to thread that needle. I think I think you like uh, a lot of other founders, a lot of other CEOs, uh, you know, dealing with sort of the same sort of issues as how to, you know, I- incorporate or how to thread it. And there's, you know, a lot, a lot of things to think about, I'm sure. I want to ask you sort of what most CEOs have sort of had to think about and, and deal with over the last year and a half. And that's sort of remote work in the office. And you're in the, the business of uh, real estate. H- how do you think about sort of the, the challenges of remote work or or how do you think about the employees at Fundrise? Do they all meet in an office or did they? And, and moving forward, what do you think that looks like? Man, that's a tough question. I mean, we we, we were mostly, I would say like 95% in, in an office in DC. Uh, we were like 100 people and now we're 225 people or 250 people or something. And we're mostly remote. I mean, the office is, we never opened our office again. We still haven't figured out how to do it can't get furniture. We had to re- we had to renovate the office and you can't get like you can't get anything to actually do the renovation. Furniture is like backlogged by like 6 months. So we went all remote and actually there were there's so the the positives were huge but let me just say a couple hopefully not all of them are, are some of them are like less well known. But like when I was starting Fundrise, I met with the guy who started Yammer, what was his name? David Sachs. Met with David Sachs who's like uh, probably some of you guys are know about Fundrise, he said, oh, I might invest in, this is when I was originally raising our Series A. He's like, I might invest in Fundrise only if you move to San Francisco. I was like, move to San Francisco? Like, why? He said, well, because you're going to get to a point in your scale. Like, you're fine. You can stay in DC until you're like 50, 100 engineers. But you're, if you, at some point, you're going to tap out this, the amount of engineers you need outside of basic San Francisco, New York, you, and mostly San Francisco. You have you know, if you want to find a specialist in data science, you're not going to find anywhere else. You're not going to be able to scale if you stay in DC. And I was like, interesting. And also I'm not going to, we're going to raise money somewhere else. So he was, he was right. Like we, we would have hit a ceiling on our growth. We would have had like a scaling challenge. Probably would have had an open office in the West coast, but the the remote work pandemic just blew that up completely. And we've hired like, I don't know, 50, 100 people in the last, we've hired 100 people in the last 12 months. And I would say the majority are remote, you know, all over the country and let us access talent in a way that we would never have access before. And there's two sides of it. So everybody obviously lets us access sort of engineering and all sorts of like esoteric um, technology talent. But also it's interesting, we're also accessing like an operations talent that like would have cost like 2x in DC, the value of talent beyond tech, I think is going to get affected by remote work too. Any kind of knowledge worker, even somebody who's like, you wouldn't think, not think of as a traditional knowledge worker is going to get affected by remote technology. I think remote technology is the biggest deal this decade. 
like e-commerce in 2000, but I, cause I'm, it's rare. <laughs> you don't really appreciate how disruptive it was. So yeah, that, that's the positive. The negative is like, how do you maintain community communication? You end up having to like, like office becomes like a service. You have to hire a bunch of people who spent all their time creating the effects of office through like intentional activities rather than through like a physical manifestation. It's, it's, everything has to be intentional rather than incidental, which is what an office space allows. Right. So does that mean that sort of over the last year and a half, I mean, obviously there's been a lot more Zooms, but that intentionality that you speak to, does that mean that you guys from a, you know, from a corporate standpoint at Funrise are doing a lot more video uh, with the intention of trying to sort of give you that feel of uh, being in an office together? We were all Zoom, but that doesn't really achieve what I'm talking about. Like we're going to have to do like retreats and like, I don't even, I mean, like okay. here, I'll give you some numbers because what the hell. So our our office rent was a million dollars a year before. Okay. Now we have twice as many people. We couldn't even come back to that office if we wanted to, but we're everywhere. If if everybody gets a budget for, you know, working at home and a, maybe a budget for co-working, and then we have, you know, two major retreats a year and everybody flies flies meet together, like, you know, and maybe their teams meet. And you, if you take all that travel and all of the retreats and all of the stipends, it's probably $2 million. It's actually probably more expensive to be remote than to be in an office. Everybody's talking about savings from that. And I think it's not to maintain the kind of culture and community, you're gonna have to spend a lot of time and money and effort and focus to 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 basically achieve like cohesion and and like connectivity, like you know, emotional connectivity, right? Not not like not like um informational. And and so it's um and and the, all the sort of the the models for it the patterns like don't exist yet we can't like you know you just, you, so many things are about just copying patterns that exist in culture and they don't they don't exist yet so it's like um it's messy yeah and speaking of that culture just a follow up to that how does how has it been received from your employees does it feel like everybody wishes they were back together or are they kind of enjoying how the remote experience has been going. And what do you look at, you know, from the the top down experience at Funrise specifically? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, mean, I think of it just like I, I think I probably feel like the way they do, which is that, you know, I'd like to be together and I'd like to be also remote. Like it's, I'd want to have both. I love getting together. I love, you know, vibing with my like, in, like when people come together, it's really, it's great. I love going back and having like. Also, sitting on the porch, and there's there's like trees and 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 like birds, and my kids will come over sometimes. It's like so I really want to have it both ways, and I think that's basically going to be how we end up. But it's like figuring that out. Like you know, we're we're still trying to figure that out. But it's um this is what I mean. Like why residential? Right, you're gonna spend all the time you spend at work. You're spending at home. Well, now that value of that home is worth more, right? Cause you, and, and you need more from it. So it's going to appreciate. That's uh, that's pretty fascinating, Ben. And, and also what you talked about, um, you know, everybody is under the assumption that it's much less having a, a remote employee, but we're social beings. You know, there has to be, like you said, retreats. There needs to be things uh, to build that camaraderie, to build uh, teamwork and, and partnerships amongst employees so they can learn and trust one another. Uh, so that was that's an interesting thing to think about that. Uh, but my question is, I wanted to ask you, 
about there's a U.S. market and Fundrise is very focused on the U.S. market and very successful at it. Are you, for the future of Fundrise, for the, the future growth of Fundrise, are you looking into other markets outside of the U.S. Uh, and starting to uh, look to that to invest in the future? Yeah, so we, we have, I mean, I've lived abroad. I've, I've actually been, we've been trying to figure that out for a long time. It's it's like it's like starting again with Fundrise back in 2012. Like, you know, when I go to, I like talking to some. But in Singapore, they're just like, are you crazy? <laughs> and I'm like, and it's really late here. <laughs> so, <laughs> but like, we actually have a partnership in Japan and we actually have like crowdfunding in Japan. Fundrise is like, uh, we have like Japanese investors that come in exactly like come into our vehicles into the United States. So we have a J- Japanese partnership. We're like, quote, big in Japan. So, so we, we, we haven't working on that, but it's like, it's a securities law challenge. In, in those countries have their own securities law. They're actually U.S. securities law, in some ways, is like more advanced. It's because it's so big. It's like a you know, three hundred million person market. Uh, you know, we're not going to do. You're not going to China, right? So you're not going to Russia. So you you it's it's um, it's really grindy actually because it's it's those markets are. I mean, there's the cultural differences are are like vast. Like we work with a partnership in, in Japan because I mean, like Japan is like. If anybody knows anything between business in Asia, it's 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 like I'll never understand it. So I have to work with people I like and trust. So it, yeah, but it's um. I mean, going back to like the the core problem, right? The problem is sorry, I'm going to get a little esoteric for a minute. If you look at like kind of the history of the world, right? Thermopylae, right? West of Greece is a different regime, cultural regime than east of Greece. If you're east of Greece, if you're in like the Middle East, Africa, Asia you don't put your money into the stock market because you don't trust the, the stock market. You don't trust institutions. Institutions basically are not tr- like are, are you have, you're a skeptic of institutions. You put your money into real estate. That's where everybody, you know, if you're, if, if you know anybody who's like first generation, you know, immigrant from any of those countries, any, any place like basically East, they, you put your money in real estate. And so Making that possible through technology, I think is is just an unbelievably vast opportunity. Uh, but it's you know no small undertaking. Well, you just flip a switch, and then all of a sudden you you have uh, jurisdictions and everything, right? It's simple, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's so tempting just to be like <laughs> crypto, be like you know, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> I can. I'm only joking. I can only imagine the the hurdles and the the mountains that are in front of you. If you're looking at other other markets, especially on the other side of the globe, <laughs> yeah, going to the Japanese market was nuts. I mean, like I was on a call at like two a.m. and like we had to like do filing in, in like some province, and I was like, I was like, like at my junk house, I was like, I don't know what what is going on here, and I was like, <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was stressful for sure. I mean, it's oh, wow. you get this it, look, Google Translate definitely helps. That's for sure get this like oh i did actually <laughs> it, it's it's actually remarkable i get these emails in japanese and like literally translates like like really well like it's it's not that i mean it's like you 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 is there are little errors here and there but like like my father he he actually um launched a real estate business in japan back in 1996 i think it was i remember and i went there and i remember like him doing it i remember him traveling and remember, that's why i have a sense of how crazy it is to, to business in japan and, um, and there's, you know, I mean, like the, the internet basically didn't exist in, in practice for people. And, 
I mean, it was just, you know, brutal, brutal. And, uh, and so, um, that time difference and that jet lag, oh man, it's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that does sound pretty brutal about, you know, maybe going there once a week to look at properties <laughs> or sign contracts and go over deals. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. That's, that'll put a toll on the body for sure. Ben, I only have one last question for you. Is there one daily thing uh, that you do in your routine that you think has contributed to your success? Oh, man. I mean, it's it's been nine years, right? Almost. It's been so, there's been so much change in my life. I'm like, I, I, I read a lot of history. I usually, like, if I could every day read, like, I don't read, like, business books and stuff. I read try to read, like, T. E. Lawrence. It's about, like, you know, from, because it, pretty much everything repeats in some way or form and you can if, if you can get out of the moment and get that perspective daily it's it's incredibly useful thank you uh interesting to hear sort of of course history repeats itself and that's right you know the more you read the more you educate yourself the more prepared you are for the future so really good advice there i just have a few quick hitters here you guys in something i've witnessed from reading consistently research reports on specific investments and more specifically, the quarterly updates. You guys do a wonderful job of communicating to the investors, to the Fundrise users, what you're thinking uh, from a macro standpoint to sort of a micro standpoint. And then you guys uh, look at the performance and talk about it. When you guys come up with these research reports or quarterly reports more specifically, I'm curious the process behind them. Is it sort of, you've got the team, they come up with them and then they send them to you? Are you writing it exclusively and does every final quarterly report have to go through uh, you or, or so give us that process? Because the way that you communicate in them is sort of direct uh, and, and you really don't hold anything back when it comes to detractors or what they've said about Fundrise or, or you specifically. And I've always admired the conviction that you guys write these reports with, regardless of, you know, the sort of the performance. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because it lets me bring up somebody who's like unsung hero. So one of my partners on the fun at Fundrise is this guy, Brandon Jenkins. He's our COO. He is like, he's been at the company at the beginning He's you know, co-founder, but like, he like hates it when we, we give him attention, but he's so freaking brilliant. And he's like, he's absolutely key to freaking almost everything. And, and that kind of the, those types of um, quarterly, like, he and I do a lot of the thinking together. He does the lion's share of the writing. He's like, he's, I mean, guy is so freaking smart. It's insane. So I like, I love to call him out here. I, I, I should do it more often, even though he, I keep trying to get him out, out front. And he, so far, not, not yet, but it's like, it's it, honestly, it's these type of conversations, we have them constantly and they just refine over the course of a quarter. And then they kind of like, then they materialize into like an update. Basically said like, like here's what's going on. Like we're, we, we, we're, we're close to the execution. We're like, you know, we're talking to home builders, we're in the work and that's what gives us the ability. I think to like sort of like coalesce it into an update. That's like, a, that's basically meant to be like sub, su substantial, like substantive, like not just like, Oh, inflation is temporary, right? Just somebody who's not actually a person who's writing, but not a doing people who do the things and write, right? That's, all about people who are in the work. Those people actually know, and so that's how we that's how we do it. We it's made it hard to scale it. Actually, some of the teams been like we need to write more often, but we have trouble figuring out how to 
maintain that process and do more of it. It's great to get the shout out for, for Brandon. That will be in the podcast. So uh, a lot of will uh, be able to hear that and, and hear uh, his brilliance. And it's funny that you said the word brilliant because I specifically oftentimes have read some of the, the quarterly report updates and just been like the, the ability to write the way that you guys communicate uh, these reports is, is absolutely brilliant. And I've said that to Danny a few times. I'll, I'll read something when it hits the email, uh, my inbox and go, you got to see this. I mean, have you read this, you know, right away? And it, it, I'll read it right away and just be, I just, I, I admire the quality of uh, the writing and how you guys believe in what you're doing and share that. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm so glad. I'm so glad I got asked that question. Yeah. I'll, um, yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, it's just like, literally it's like, it's, that's some, one of the most enjoyable things is to actually be able to connect with all so many people the whole goal of Fundraise Mission, right, was like 2008 will happen again. Like it's it, it, it's going to happen again, and I and the same once once everything blows up, you'll see basically more shenanigans. And like at that moment, like like in March 2020, when the market went down 40 percent, and we didn't, and we had people writing into us being like, "You're the only thing that basically had like that had solidity, like maintained and and was like had integrity." That's like that's actually the product, but people can't see it yet because we haven't had a crisis. It's 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 real asset. It's not you know whatever a hundred times forward revenue product, you know on the stock market. It's just been amazing to to witness the not just the growth of the entire platform. I've noticed Fundrise is there more over the last year, year and a half. Let's say more specifically, probably this year, and even yourself. You know, we saw you on CNBC. It seems like you're doing a little marketing. Are you intentionally, from a Fundrise standpoint, getting out there more so that you can grow the platform quicker or get more users? Is there a reason behind it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we basically like prioritized it. I mean, we were so focused on like doing the work. Usually whatever somebody's strength is, it ends up being also their weakness. And so we're like obsessed with substance and, and like we call it dish digging. It's like a com- company value. It's like collective dish digging. And so we weren't like out there self-promoting which is like key to most tech companies and uh and like finally like john garden who's our chief marketing officer is like convinced us we're like we gotta get we gotta do this and i was like oh fine okay so yeah and and um i mean honestly it's just it's it's work like any other work and it's just on the list of work i have to do or anybody has to do and any any week you you know it's just it might as well be i mean once you do it for a while it's like uh it doesn't seem like different than sitting down and having to do like some analysis or something like that. We'd like to thank Ben Miller and the community for a great conversation. To stay informed of upcoming conversations, subscribe to the Investorly newsletter at investorly.substack.com. Investorly, invest early in yourself.